Hello, Yakima friends. It's good to be with you. Uh, morning your time, a few days earlier my time. But uh, it's such a joy to be able to contribute, even from a distance, uh, even in these hard times. So uh, here you've been going through the book of Revelation, which is obviously one of my favorites. And uh, I also hear that you kind of zoom through the chapters in between. Uh, and that's understandable. There's a lot of room for interpretation and different uh, understandings of that bit. But as we near the end of the book of Revelation, uh, you know, the outlook and the interpretation is, is pretty clear uh, in terms of uh, just what the, what the theme and what the, ultimate, uh, what the ultimate meaning of this book is all about. Uh, remember the story that was told of, uh, I believe it was Charles Swindoll who said that he was in seminary in Dallas Seminary when as a young graduate he was strutting around the the, the, the corridors of the university and uh, came across uh, the janitor who was sitting down reading his Bible and you know, he was he was pretty impressed the janitor was reading his Bible I guess in the seminary this is should be expected but as he approached he said to the janitor what are you reading old pal and he said well I'm reading the book of Revelation and uh, Chuck Swindle says well book of Revelation I mean are you getting anything out of that I mean isn't that a little bit above your pay grade and he said no actually it's it's quite simple I, I get it he says, what do you mean you get it? You know, we've been studying this for years and still can't figure it out. And the old janitor said, no, it's actually quite simple. Jesus wins. And, and that's really the theme and the, the message of Revelation at the end is that Jesus wins. And there's just, it's, it's, it's beyond any shadow of a doubt. It's the unquestionable and unqualified victory of Jesus Christ over death, over Satan, over sin, and, uh, and restoring everything back to God's original plan and more. So as we come to Revelation today, we come to Revelation chapter 20, in which we, we find the theme now of the, the, the kingdom of God. And of course, it comes on Revelation chapter 29, uh, no, it follows on ch uh, Revelation chapter 19, in which Jesus' second coming was, uh, was described in, 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 in glorious detail. And of course, following the coming of Christ, you have these two beasts that have been destroyed and have been uh, sent to the lake of fire because of their animosity to God's kingdom. And so at the end of chapter 19 of Revelation, it says that they were seized and they were thrown into the lake of fire. And, um, and so then the question is, okay, so the tribulation has come to an end and, and the, the great battle of Armageddon has concluded and, and Jesus has arrived. And what next? You know, what happens after that? And, uh, and that's where we pick up today with uh, the book of Revelation. You see, all along the book of Revelation has been trying to bring us to this point. And, and it's the point of, of the kingdom of God is finally here. And that's the, that's the great thrust and really the great purpose of, of all of the New Testament. In fact, going way back to the Old Testament, you have uh, always pointing forward and preparing the way, paving the way for the great kingdom of God to become a reality. Uh, we see this in the book of Revelation itself. As far back as chapter 11, verse 15, uh, we can begin to kind of see the echoes of this, as it were. Uh, Revelation 11, verse 15, The seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So finally, God's kingdom becomes a reality in this world. He says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And the implication being that for some time the kingdom of the world was not the kingdom of the Lord 
It was not under his authority, ultimately. Uh, it was ultimately usurped by Satan and uh, was being governed otherwise. Uh, you see, again, chapter 15, uh, 12, verse 10, in a similar way. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brother has been thrown down. Again, kind of harking forward to the kingdom is almost here. And this is what it's all about, is the realization of the ultimate purpose and plan of God as it's embodied in the kingdom, the kingdom. And then you have uh, chapter 19, which you just went through. Chapter 19, verse 6, ends with four hallelujahs echoing through heaven. And then finally, hallelujah for the Lord Almighty. He reigns. The kingdom is finally here. And then you have verse 15 of chapter 19, where he says uh, of the Lord that he comes with a sharp sword uh, that's coming out of his mouth. He strikes the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So it's the rule and the reign of Christ. It's his uh, ultimate kingdom, the restoration of God's purposes as embodied in the kingdom that's envisioned throughout this book of Revelation. And it's envisioned throughout the whole of the Bible. That is the great theme of the Bible. And it's one that we often miss. We often think of the kingdom only in, in its ultimate sense, in its physical sense, when Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the earth. And yet, uh, we can see it being traced from the beginning, right? From the beginning, God creates this beautiful kingdom called earth, and he entrusts it to man and woman. And yet they, by falling for the lies of the, of, of the enemy, they ended up uh, giving it over, handing over the reins of power to Satan, who then kidnaps, as it were, the rest of, of history and, uh, and usurps the role of, of man as ruler of this planet. And then we have throughout the whole Old Testament this, this great promise and all these prophecies given of one day there will be a king again. One day a righteous ruler will come and will take the reins, will take the kingdom back from the enemy and restore it to humanity and ultimately restore it to God's purposes and to bring it back under his sovereignty. And so you have throughout this, uh, you know, the whole Old Testament, the preparation for the kingdom. And then Christ arrived and that's his message. That's his gospel. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the kingdom is here. This is what the Jews were expecting for things to be restored to their proper order, for God's kingdom to be established. Now, of course, they envisioned this in, in, in a purely nationalistic sense, that they as a Jewish people would rule the rest of the world, but they didn't, they didn't have the foggiest idea of what God ultimately planned to do, and that was to restore all nations to himself, bring all under his power and authority, and uh, to, again, restore them to his original purpose. And so Christ, you know, is, is proclaiming this kingdom, of course, the Jewish people refused to recognize him as the Messiah, and so this is delayed. It's postponed until his second coming. Uh, but interestingly, even after Jesus raises from the dead, the dead, his disciples are with him for 40 days, and, uh, and the question that's most pressing on their mind is, when will the kingdom take place? Is it now? Jesus, is it now? And Jesus has to say, no, no, guys, hang on. Hang on to your horses. The time will come. It will soon come. And again, we see even in the messages of Peter throughout the book of Acts, this expectation, uh, chapter 5 and 6, when he says, you know, if you will believe, if you will, be, if you will repent, the kingdom will come now. There's this longing for the kingdom to happen today. Uh, because that's the gospel all the way through. And of course, 
They wouldn't have dreamed that this would have taken as long as it has, 2,000 years, as we wait for uh, the repentance of God's people to the restoration and ultimately the fullness of God's purposes among the nations. But that great promise is still holding true and holding out there, and that's that the kingdom will come. And so the book of Revelation kind of brings us full circle to that kingdom that was lost, that was usurped, and was promised, and uh, through Christ, his authority, the authority of this kingdom was, was, was gained again. And yet we are waiting for the fullness of that, which will happen with the return of Christ and the establishment of his reign. So the kingdom of God is the great motif of scripture. And we see it finally come full circle here. And of course, we've seen this all throughout the Old Testament. We've seen it all through the New Testament in the words of Jesus. And, and specifically, if you just take a moment before we dip into Revelation 20, to go back to Matthew chapter 25. And I think this is important because Matthew 24 speaks of Christ's coming and uh, chapter 25 about being ready for that. But then he tells us what is going to happen the moment Christ returns and, and what to expect at that point. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him for judgment. And so again, very clear that Jesus' return is followed by his kingdom. And this is what the, the book of Revelation would lead us to believe. This is important because there's two different ways of, of viewing things future in terms of uh, kind of a uh, Christian world, as it were. You have some who would see it from an amillennial perspective, saying there's no real literal kingdom to be expected. There's no 1,000 years to be uh, to, you know, ahead of us. That in a way, we are in God's kingdom, in the way we are leading up to God's kingdom, and we are to produce that kingdom one way or another by our, our faithful service to the Lord. And yet, when we look at Revelations uh, chapter 20 and all the expectations that have been built up by the prophets, it seems very clear that we are to expect a very literal kingdom, that when Christ returns, he will sit on his throne and he will judge and he will reign and there will be a kingdom here on earth, a physical material kingdom, uh, which is the way I see this. And I see the book of Revelation bearing this out right after Christ returns and the two beasts are, are punished and you have Satan that's bound and Christ is seated on his throne and begins to reign, and it says, for a thousand years. And the word, a thousand years, is repeated six times. Our millennialists would take that, uh, that phrase, a thousand years, in a very, uh, very kind of allegorical way, maybe as a hyperbolic expression of, of the length of, and the fullness of God's kingdom. And yet, here we have full detail and lots of other details given about this kingdom. Now, let's come to... Revelation chapter 20, and it starts out by saying, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So we have the, the binding of Satan. And why is this significant? Because the book of, well, the whole of the Bible begins with the loosing of Satan, as it were. Satan is loosed into the garden and he deceives humanity and he makes a mess of things. And so now finally that old serpent, that old conniving snake, the dragon, the devil, 
And, and all his names are listed here in one, just so that we know who we're talking about. That serpent, that great liar, is finally brought to justice. And it's bound here by a great angel who puts him, throws him into the abyss. Now, there's some question about what it actually means by the abyss. And if you have the time, you can go down that rabbit trail and try to figure out what the abyss is. It's not absolutely clear and there's no definitive answer. But what's obvious and clear from this passage is that Satan is locked up, locked up in a way that he cannot escape and cannot in any way deceive the nations for another 1,000 years. And so this is an interesting period of time. We're going into a period of human history in which Satan is not loose, in which we cannot blame Satan for any of the ills among mankind. In this next 1,000 years, the final period of human history, there will be no devil to tempt us. Now, what are we to expect after that, verse 4, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment, judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, it's implying that we know more than uh, many of us might really understand. It starts out by immediately jumping into the subject of this millennial reign, this 1,000 year reign of Christ, which we speak of as the millennium, which means a thousand year reign. Now, it's quite interesting that the majority of the book of Revelation uh, focuses on the tribulation, which from all we know will only last about seven years. And yet it only spends one chapter, in fact, half a chapter on the millennium, which will last 1,000 years. And that might be strange to some, but I think the reason for that is because uh, while we may not know a whole lot about the tribulation based on the Old Testament and the passages, we know quite a bit about the millennium. The Old Testament is chock full of, of, of descriptions of the millennium. And so the author John, a Jew, doesn't feel like he has to go into any great length and detail to explain what Christ's reign on earth will be like. In fact, he starts out by assuming that we know what he's talking about. The great millennium has been spoken of in so much detail throughout the Old Testament. If you have, if you have time and care to look at it, you can just take a look through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, and then chapter 11, and then chapter 25 and 35, and then 63 to the end of the book gives multiple descriptions of the millennium. And, and some of these descriptions have become very familiar to us. The, the lamb, lion with the sheep, or the lion with the, with the lamb. Uh, the lion with the lamb, or the wolf with the sheep. And then we have the kid that plays with the cobra and is not hurt. And then we have people hammering their swords into plowshares. And, you know, many other descriptions like this that speak of, of global peace. No more war. Of, of a time in human history when people uh, are no longer fighting or you know strangling each other but are living in harmony as it was intended from the beginning and in a sense you kind of get a sense that God is recreating the conditions of that Garden of Eden as it was supposed to be and bringing us back to the original and reformatting the world as it were and so many of these descriptions are just very poignant throughout the Old Testament it also describes a time in which Jerusalem becomes the center of uh, the centerpiece of, of, of human government and, and Christ himself sits on the throne and 
All nations gather together there to receive his judgments and, and all worship him. It also describes in Ezekiel, the last few chapters, a great temple that's built uh, in Jerusalem and a great city that's built there and how all the nations flock there to gather around the Messiah. Uh, many, many descriptions, many, many details about the kingdom. And so because of that, uh, John the Apostle just doesn't feel like he needs to repeat all of that. It's obvious anybody who knows his Bible knows what the kingdom is about. It's been talked about so much. And so he starts out in verse, uh, here in chapter 20, verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them. And you think, John, who sat on them? Who are you talking about? You know, you're a little bit left out, it seems, except for, uh, if we put this in the context of the book of Revelation and the rest of Scripture. If we just go back to the book of Revelation chapter 4, we will remember that they, when, when John first went into God's presence and he saw the, the throne of the Lamb, uh, he also saw other thrones. There was a group of thrones, in fact, 24 thrones with 24 elders, and there's some debate, you know, who are these men? They are likely a representation of both Old and New Testament saints, uh, representative of maybe the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples. And here you, of course, do you remember that Jesus said to his disciples, you will judge uh, the nation of Israel. And so these, these thrones seem to be harking back to Revelation chapter 4, in which now these elders are, are brought together to, to judge. And they, they sat on them, it says, and judgment was given to them. Now it also kind of brings back another picture, another image, and this is an image that goes back to Daniel chapter 7. And so to be able to kind of put it in context, we need to go back to Daniel chapter 7 and, and see what he is referring to. In Daniel chapter 7, you have this incredible vision of all, uh, you know, all human governments down through time, and one comes after the other, and uh, it's quite ironic because the very, very similar vision was given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two of Daniel, and what he envisioned as a great and glorious statue uh, later in Daniel's dream and Revelation and in Daniel chapter seven, it, it appears like a, a bunch of rapacious animals that are at each other's necks and. Really interesting that while from a human perspective, human history might seem as a glorious statue from God's perspective, it's just a bunch of animals going at it. And sadly, that's so true. And so in Revelation chapter 7, after the final kingdom out of which the Antichrist comes and, 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 and just does a, makes, a, uh, makes a mess of, uh, of the world, you find that in verse 9 of chapter 7, it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And so you see the link with Revelation chapter uh, 20, verse 4. Here it says, Thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days takes his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and the throne was ablaze with fires. Its wheels were a burning fire, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. It's the picture of judgment. And so this again, it, 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 it kind of begins to bring us back. Uh, it connects very beautifully with Revelation chapter 20. And, and what's going on here is ultimately God is bringing human history and human governments to judgment. And who are the ones that are gathered around him that are judging? Well, in this case, it's God's people, including us. And it talks about in this picture that 
as this judgment is going on, verse 13, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. He comes to the Ancient of Days, he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom. That all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And see, this is the establishment of Christ's kingdom. So as we come back to Revelation chapter 20, now we know what we're talking about. We're talking about final, the end of human government, of all human rebellion that's, you know, been, uh, we've seen those kingdoms rise and fall as Daniel described. And finally, now we have justice is brought, judgment is brought upon all these nations and the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Man, appears to take dominion, to become the world ruler. And so Revelation, when we keep that picture in mind from Daniel chapter 7, we can read this in a new way. Revelation 20 verse 4, When I saw, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And then he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. And so along with the judgments, you have resurrections are taking place. People who have died, in this case, who have been martyred for the cause of Christ during the time of the tribulation, are raised back to life to join Christ in his kingdom, right? And it says these have not taken his, his, the, the, the mark of the beast and they are to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now the resurrection of the tribulation saints is, is not just obviously them, there's many others who will be raised again to join into Christ's kingdom. And, and we know this again from, from Daniel and from many other passages. In Daniel chapter 12, it describes uh, the resurrection of, of saints like Daniel. In fact, at the very end, chapter 12, verse 13 of Daniel, you know, Daniel has more questions than he has answers. And, and the Lord says, Daniel, you just relax. You're going to go and go to your place and you will be you will, you will rise again, and you will see, and you will understand all this. Don't worry. The time will come when everything will become clear. And so we, we have, of course, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, many passages that describe the resurrection of God's people. And, and they are specifically being resurrected to join in Christ's kingdom, to finally see the victory of the Lamb, to see the vindication of God's justice, to participate in the great and glorious kingdom of the Messiah. So we have tribulation saints and many others rising again to participate in Christ's kingdom. And to put it just very simply, all believers, all saints will be raised again to participate in Christ's kingdom. And, and how do we know that? Well, it talks about it as, it describes it as the first resurrection. Verse 5 in Revelations 20. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So he's making a distinction. There's going to be two resurrections. At the beginning of Christ's kingdom, at the end of the tribulation and beginning of his kingdom, there will be a resurrection, the first resurrection, in which all believers are raised again to participate in Christ's glorious kingdom. But then after the, after the thousand-year reign, there will be a second resurrection. And that second resurrection will not be unto life, will not be of believers, it will be of unbelievers who are going to be then condemned to the second death. So those who are raised again in the first resurrection only suffer the first death, that is, physical death. Those who are raised again in the second resurrection, after the thousand-year reign, are going to suffer not just the first death, but the second death, which is ultimate alienation from God and His presence. 
judgment in the eternal fires of hell. So this is it's creating that distinction for us. And it's clear that they are going to be raised again, resurrected with bodies. Okay, and those who are raised again, of course, with resurrected bodies, but bodies that are still able to enjoy all the pleasures and joys of God's new creation, as it were, God's kingdom here on earth. Verse uh, 5 tells us this is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And this is ultimately the greatest blessing of all, is those who have trusted in Christ. Yes, they may have died. Yes, they may have suffered horribly or been martyred even for their faith. Some may have been uh, taken up to heaven in a rapture at the end. But the the point is, is that they will all be gathered together as Christ's people in his kingdom to participate in his his glory. And, and, And the second death, will have no power over them, meaning that final and full uh, alienation from God, eternal damnation will not be their, uh, their destiny. But instead, they will be priests to God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So it emphasizes again, 1,000 years in which Christ will be reigning on earth. And notice what we will be doing. It says we will be priests of God. And that's a fascinating concept that has just a great history throughout the Old Testament. In fact, uh, right now I'm teaching through the, book of, uh, through the book of Exodus and Leviticus to a group of believers in Bulgaria. And quite interestingly, one of the fellows that's joined our lessons, he's a new believer from Israel. Because we're doing the lessons on Zoom, he's able to join us. And uh, he is a new believer from Israel who uh, is actually a registered, certified rabbi and has just come to the Lord in the last few months, was baptized, I think a month ago, just full of questions, brimming with enthusiasm, and very excited to see the scriptures in a new way. And so it's quite fascinating to go through the Old Testament, uh, especially through the Torah, uh, with someone who's a rabbi, who, who's seen it in a very different light, and now he's combining it with the New Testament. Uh, and today, as we were going through the, the book of Leviticus, he said, you know what? I'm actually a Kohen, I'm a rabbi. And, and the priests. Our family traces its line all the way back to the priests. Even though most of the other tribes cannot trace themselves back to any particular group, the, the, the priests have been very careful, what they call the Kohanim, to, to keep very accurate records. And to this day, we know who we are. There's a groups of us who are priests, and whenever anybody wants uh, certain prayers and blessings for their children who are newly born or for a marriage or something else, they will call on the Kohanim and ask them, do you have a priest near to us? And they will say, well, where are you? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, we have a priest at this address. You can call him up. He will come and pray for your baby. And uh, he says, I've been in yeshiva, which is their seminary for 17 years, learning the, the law and, and, and being preparing myself to be a priest, although we don't have a temple, uh, but hoping one day for this great kingdom. And here we are talking about, you know, uh, the, you know all that God has prepared. And I, I was telling them, well, that kingdom is not far away. And one day you may be a priest in God's kingdom and serving in his temple, just like all of us. 
And, and this, this message of a priest is, is so powerful. You see it in the book of Leviticus in particular. This God has uh, created a way for his people to come into contact with himself. He's, uh, he's, he's designed this tabernacle so that there will be a touch point between heaven and earth in which he can live among his people. And yet, one of the challenges of that is that God is holy and that uh, to live in such proximity to God is a huge risk for his people. And so he has to set up all these series of, of protections for the people uh, so that they will not uh, be harmed by God's holiness. And then you have the priests that are brought to, 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 to serve in this temple. Uh, it is fascinating. You know, we were talking about this as yesterday. You know, the idea that only the priests could go in. In fact, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And that once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement. And, you know, I can only imagine, you know, any other Jew in town or uh, in, the, in and around the temple watching and longing and wishing they could go into the temple. They could, you know, experience that. And yet it was a prerogative of only one person once a year to appear into God's presence. And yet we come to Revelation, uh, come to the New Testament and then uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 10 in which it says that now we have a new high priest and, and he, he tore that veil and, and now we can all go in and we can all approach God individually to go into his presence and to, uh, to, to commune with him in a very personal way. And you know, it was, it was fascinating to, to watch my friend uh, Mordecai, the Jewish priest, you know, he, he's a priest and, and he's only known that the priest could ever do this. And to suddenly find out that all who believe in Jesus are priests and that everyone can approach God. It was overwhelming for him. And of course, for the rest of the believers who were listening to the lesson and beginning to appreciate the kind of privilege we're talking about for all of us to be called priests, for all of us to have access into God's presence and to be able to go in without fear of being harmed by God's holiness, but that we are welcome because Christ has made us holy through his sacrifice. And just a beautiful picture. And so as we come to the book of Revelation, it's in chapter 5 and now in chapter 20, it emphasizes that same phrase that we are priests of the living God. And this is what we will be doing in Christ's kingdom. And what does a priest do? Well, he represents the, the interests of God here on earth. He, he stands between God and man. He offers sacrifices. It's the priest is the one who ministers, is who, one to, who, 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 who uh, brings people into contact with God and to, who orchestrates the worship in God's house and so many things that the priest would do. And in a very real way, we're all drawn into that, invited to be Christ's priests. And so in the kingdom of God, when Jesus is king here on earth. That's what we will be doing. We will be serving people on behalf of Christ, worshiping Christ on behalf of the people. We are going to be the go-betweens. We're going to be the, the new bureaucracy, as it were, in his kingdom, hopefully with a lot less red tape, in which we can truly bring honor to the Lord Jesus in our service to him and to the nations that are around. And of course, here is an interesting little footnote, uh, because as we go into the next section, we're going to find out that Satan is released and that he is able to gather a whole bunch of people who do not believe in the Messiah. Christ is king in Jerusalem. He is on the evening news. Everybody sees him, recognizes him, pays homage to him. And yet a whole group of the world is somehow able to be gathered to be brought into a final rebellion against the Messiah. 
Who are these? We can read about it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, it says, When the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. What? I thought the wars were done. The tribulation is long finished. We're talking about a thousand years later. What war? It says, The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. That many people are gathered in a, some great rebellion against God. He goes on to say, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem, the capital of the Messiah and his kingdom. And, they, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we know what the ending is. Again, Satan is finally disposed of and sent into the lake of fire where the other two beasts await him. And yet, how is it that there is a final rebellion? How is it that in, in, in a thousand year millennium, when there is no Satan, no devil, no temptation of that sort, that they are still going to be able to gather this many people in a great revolt and rebellion against the Messiah? I think it's a testimony to the fact that the real root of sin is not Satan. We like to say the devil made me do it. But the reality is that the roots of, Satan, of, of sin go very deeply into our own hearts. And it's the depraved human heart and condition that ultimately is responsible for the, for the sin and the corruption in this world. But I think there's another part of this that we need to recognize and acknowledge okay, is that there are going to be people on the earth during that time that are not believers. I think we make a mistake when we confuse the kingdom of God, in other words, Christ's kingdom here on earth, with, with heaven. The thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium, is not heaven. Heaven is what happens after that. Chapter 21 and 22, when there is a new heaven and a new earth, where there is absolutely no sin. The point being that during the millennium, there will still be sin, there will still be death, this is not heaven as we know it yet. During the millennial reign, Christ will be reigning on earth. And yet, it's important to recognize that in the judgments that are described, especially if you really make a, a careful reading of Matthew chapter 25, which we read at the beginning, Jesus sits on his throne and he begins to judge the nations and divide them as a, as a, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And, and he's dividing them. But notice how he's dividing them. Who is he dividing there? He's not talking to believers. The believers are already on his side. Those that believe in him have been resurrected from the dead. Who is he talking about? Well, he makes, a, he makes the point there of saying that those who are uh, invited to participate in his kingdom are those who have been gracious and kind to believers, who have done so much as given them a cup of water. And those who are excluded from his kingdom and are sent to condemnation and damnation are those who are, who are not kind enough to even give him a cup of water. I think what we can understand from that passage is that when Christ returns to earth at the end of the battle of Armageddon and he destroys all those armies that are gathered together against his people uh, and he punishes them all, he doesn't necessarily kill all unbelievers in the world. He doesn't decimate the rest of the world population. Of course, much of it has already been decimated because of God's wrath poured out during the tribulation. But whatever of mankind is left on, the, on this planet after Armageddon when Christ returns, those who have risen up against God's people, 
Those who have shown animosity to God's people and have attacked them, they will be treated as enemies and will be punished. And yet the rest of the human population on earth that has not shown animosity to God's people during the tribulation will be spared. And they will be allowed to live and uh, ultimately multiply on earth. So that when we, the resurrected saints, come to reign on the earth during the millennium with Jesus Christ, who will we be reigning over? We will be reigning over the rest of the world populations and nations that are still left. And they, for a thousand years, will continue to multiply, have children. Even though we as resurrected believers, we will not be uh, in that way anymore uh, you know, procreating. But these other people who are left over from the tribulation and their children and grandchildren will be living. And it's from these, there will be many who... Although secretly, although maybe publicly paying homage to the Son and, and worshiping Christ, and uh, they will be secretly harboring some form of, of resentment, of unrepentance, so that when the, when the enemy, Satan, is finally released at the end of uh, the, the millennial reign, he is able to gather up enough disgruntled people to form, to stage one final revolt against Christ and his kingdom in his capital city in Jerusalem. And of course, it doesn't end well. One final detail though here is he describes this as the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And many of you recognize that this, is, this phrase appears in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And a careful reading of those chapters implies that this great battle, this great attack on the nation of Israel is actually what was previously described in chapter 19. That all these nations gathered around uh, that are actually neighbors of the modern nation of Israel gather together to attack and try to destroy the nation of Israel, but it doesn't end as they imagine. In fact, they are decimated. Uh, and that's, in many ways, it seems to be parallel with the same events described in Revelation 19, which is ultimately the Battle of Armageddon. But here it references them again. Some rebels left over somehow are, ma are managing to gather together and he describes them with this familiar phrase from Ezekiel 38, 39, describes them as Gog and Magog. What's left of that old, those old seeds of rebellion, the neighbors of the nation of Israel that somehow still have it in for them. And so this passage ultimately gives us one, the binding of Satan, Second, the, the judgment of those gathered together to destroy God's people, and then the resurrection of those who are going to join Christ in His kingdom. And it only gives us a few passages because the kingdom of Christ, the millennial reign, is so well documented and detailed in the Old Testament. John doesn't feel that he needs to go into those details. But then he says, we, God's people who are raised again, will participate in His kingdom. We will be managing this earth with him. And we see many echoes of this in Jesus' parable. You remember the parable of the talents, where he says he gives to different individuals different talents. And yet when the king returns, he, he settles a score with each one and he says, what have you done with the talent that I've given you? And, and you remember that at that point, the, the Lord will praise those who have used it and invested it well and say, come, join my kingdom and I will put you in charge of five cities or ten cities or whatever the case may be based on your faithfulness here on earth based on the use of the, the gifts and talents God has given you here today, you will be given opportunities to serve and minister to Christ in the, the final reign of Christ, in the millennial reign. And so uh, this is what we have to look forward to. And I think it's encouraging that whether we died 
today or 20 years from now, we know for sure we have 1,000 years yet to look forward to here on earth in which we will reign under Christ. And this will be the ultimate vindication of His purposes. This will be the ultimate vindication of, uh, of Christ and His and, 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 and his reign, because so much has been ruined and destroyed by Satan. And yet, finally, through Jesus Christ, his kingdom becomes a reality. And here on earth, he is reigning. He is reigning and setting the record straight, as it were. There's so much that God has intended and desired for this world. Uh, even, in the, even in the Torah and the Old Testament, we see so many things that God intended for his people to live out. And yet they failed and never were able to reach that potential. And yet in the millennial reign, we'll see that many of those things that were thwarted by the enemy, that uh, did not become a reality because of human disobedience and rebellion, will finally become a reality. And Christ will be able to show, finally, what it is He intended for mankind. What a, what a world He had in mind for all of us. Now, as we, final, as we just kind of wrap up our thoughts on the millennial reign of Christ... I think it's important to draw a few things together. When we think of the kingdom of God, it's very easy to only think of its ultimate and final uh, realization and fulfillment in the millennial reign of Christ. And yet, when we go back to Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus' words on, on numerous occasions, it's clear that he has a much broader conception of the millennial reign. Uh, take, for example, Luke chapter 12, verse 31. Luke chapter 12 Verse 31, he says, Seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And so we see here this, 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 this longing for this kingdom and that God has entrusted it to his people. So what does that mean? Does that mean, is he talking about the thousand year reign, looking yet forward or to the future? Well, I think there's more. Jesus and Luke chapter 17 says something that's really quite, uh, quite interesting. They come and they ask him point blank as he's approaching Jerusalem, final approach before the cross. And he says in Luke 17 verse 20, the Pharisees questioned them about the kingdom of God and when it was coming. And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst or is among you, or it's here now. And so you have in the, in the teaching of Jesus, you have this idea that the kingdom of God is already a reality, at least in spiritual form. Partially, it's already here. Why? Because Christ is here. Christ has won the day. Christ has defeated death, has, has in a way already taken back that authority. As he says in Matthew 20, uh, 28, verse 19, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've won the right back to rule this world. And so in a way, he's saying, the kingdom is here already. The kingdom is already here. He says in Colossians chapter 1, he says, we have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And he uses the past tense. We as believers, in a very real sense, are already part of Christ's kingdom. We are already seeing his kingdom being established. And so, uh, even though we might not agree with the amillennial, uh, our amillennial friends that the kingdom, that there is no future uh, kingdom, no 1,000 year reign, uh, I believe there is. I think we need to benefit in this regard from their understanding. They look at uh, 
the history of the church and God's work through the gospel, and they see that God's kingdom, in, in a way, is already becoming a reality. That it's not all just future, but there is a sense in which the kingdom is here now. And we are charged with, with furthering the purposes of God and His kingdom through the work of the gospel. And it's, that way, and it's in this way that Jesus commands His disciples to pray, Your kingdom come! Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the kingdom is not something we just put at the end of our shelf and let's just wait for that to happen after the battle of Armageddon and tribulation. No, no, that's the ultimate and final fulfillment of it. But in a very real sense, the kingdom is already at work now. Jesus uses so many parables to describe the, the kingdom as, as it were, as yeast, he says, and it's already growing as a mustard seed. It might seem small and insignificant, but God is, God is doing something awesome, doing something great. And so instead of seeing it as an either-or scenario, I think it's better to see it as both and. Here, but not quite yet. His kingdom is here. The rights have been won over by Jesus Christ, and yet we wait for its fulfillment when Christ finally returns and he wins back all authority and power and establishes his rule and vindicates uh, all of God's purposes. And so that's the day we look forward to. And so even as we kind of have gone all the way to the end of human history, as it were, and, and that's what it is. It's the, the final kingdom of God is, is, is God setting the record straight. All these human governments have come and gone and made a mess of humankind. But finally we have God's kingdom in all its glory and all its power. On a practical note, I think it's important here to, to note that this is only going to become a reality when Christ finally appears. It's been the tendency of Christians down through history, the 2,000 years of church history, to want to somehow make this kingdom a reality without Christ by social reform or by maybe nationalistic fervor. You know, some of the first uh, Christians that came to America, pilgrims, they began to believe that they were starting God's kingdom, that they were establishing Zion, that uh, this was the new Israel and that God was going to bless them and through them expand his kingdom around the world. And there's been a, a flavor of that in, in American Christianity for the last couple hundred years. This idea that, that we are the representatives of God's kingdom and we are to spread his kingdom around the world. And some of that has been championed in the name of democracy, trying to spread it everywhere and with the assumption that if we can only bring social reform and freedom and equality and all the virtues of democracy to bear on the, the, the problems in the world, that God's kingdom will come. Well, that's not what the Bible will teach us. The Bible tells us that without Christ and until Christ comes, there will not be the fullness of his kingdom. So while we pray and long for his kingdom, as we should, and while we work towards that and, and, and beg God to, to transform lives, we, we also need to be honest and remember that this is not going to be won over with uh, democratic or nationalistic fervor. And we need to be wary of people that are trying to, in one way or another, use whether it is you know, political agendas or anything else and, and clothe it in, in Christian lingo or somehow uh, teaching that they are bringing in God's kingdom. No, the kingdom is God's. It's Christ's kingdom. And He will bring it to reality and to fullness at the end. And it's not going to be one that's going to be focused on one people or preferring one political group over another, or even one nation over another. It's going to be a, a kingdom in which all nations 
are brought together under his banner, in which all peoples are brought together and dignified by his glory. That is the kingdom. And so even as we long for it, uh, we need to be wary as we look around, as, as it's been the temptation and the tendency of humans all through history, including Christians, to keep trying to set up kingdoms, to keep trying to establish certain reigns. And as Christians, we, we call it Christian names, whether it's Zion or something else. And, and even groups like Mormons and others have come with uh, the same idea that they're setting up the final church of Christ. Well, you know what? It's all written beforehand. We don't need to reinvent anything or need to force anything. As Jesus said, many were trying in his day to, to force the kingdom to happen in the times of John and Jesus. And Jesus said that that's just not the way it's going to happen. His kingdom cannot come by force. We will have to wait for the Lord Jesus to come at the time that the Father has, has desired for him to come. And we, in the meantime, are called to be faithful to him, to be faithful in sharing the gospel, in living out the truths of his kingdom, in welcoming all nations, in inviting all to participate in the great and glorious purposes of God. I hope is that as we've gone through this passage, which is maybe a little bit difficult to understand, that you can come away again with a renewed hope and a new vision of what it is we're really longing for. We're not necessarily longing for a renewed America or, or even a, a better world. We're looking toward, forward to the day that Christ is Lord and when He sets everything straight. And only then can we look and say, yeah, this is what we've always desired. This is the vindication of God's purposes. So let's just end with a word of prayer as we wrap up Revelation chapter 20. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for the privilege of being together on this day and opening your word. And uh, Lord, just to be able to see history before it's written, to be able to see the final chapters of human history and to see that it's all, it's all been uh, prepared and that there's, there's nothing left to chance, nothing uh, that the enemy will ultimately be able to thwart. Lord, even as he has tried so long to alter your plans and even at the end we'll, we'll have one final stand, Lord, we know that he is a defeated enemy and that your purposes will prevail. And Lord, even as, as we live in a world that's so broken on so many levels and, and have the temptation and tendency to want to uh, establish your kingdom on our own terms, just Lord, protect us from that. Protect our minds and our hearts, Lord, from being uh, drawn into those uh, false kingdoms, Lord. Help us to instead to put all our attention back onto you and what you are doing now, today, in changing and transforming hearts and in ultimately looking forward to that day when you will return in glory to, to bring judgment, justice, to resurrect the saints and to bring it all together in your kingdom. We long for that day and we look forward to participating in your kingdom. We thank you for that privilege even now. In Christ's name, amen.